This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. All right, we're doing something a little different, a little special today. We're going to play a game. TK Coleman is with me. TK, are you ready for this game? TK? I hope so. Okay. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> you didn't answer for a minute. I was scared. So uh, we're going to play a game called Words. Not Words with Friends. Words with TK Coleman. Just one friend. And it's totally one-sided. I'm just going to throw a word at you, TK. And you are going to riff on it. Just like whatever comes to mind. And the reason we're doing this is because throughout the years, I have realized your greatest ability. Well, I don't know if it's your greatest, but we'll just say that because it's more dramatic is the ability to, to on the spot, define a word and then riff on that word and, and discuss the meaning of that word and that concept in a way that is incredibly interesting. So I'm just going to hit you with a bunch of words and you're just going to give me what comes to mind. Sound good? It sounds good, man. Hey, here we go. Fear. Mm. (laughs) All right. So when I think of fear and this isn't, necessarily a definition but i when i think of fear what comes to mind is fear is that which destroys you from a distance but empowers you up close i think about this in in a lot of different ways just in terms of everyday life like taking creative risk um following our dreams exploring interests making friends when you when you look at fear from the outside you know, you're just imagining how, you know, all the bad things that can happen to you, all the ways in which you'll embarrass yourself if you try something new. Fear is this really frightening thing. As a hypothetical reality, it's just this nefarious monster that, you know, can, is capable of controlling our lives. But when you actually take risk, when you actually introduce yourself to the person you're afraid to meet, or you just start to, you know, build a business, or you just start to, to ask for the things you need or to speak your mind, you discover that fear up close is not quite scary. It's not as scary as it seems. Your ability to cope with the things you're afraid of is almost always better than you imagine. Your ability to bounce back from whatever it was you, you were afraid to experience is almost always better than you imagine. And in fact, um, Dan Gilbert, he's the author of a book called Stumbling Upon Happiness. He has a book, I mean, he has a, a, a TED talk where he discusses this very thing. He talks about how We're not as good as we think we are at predicting when we'll be happy and when we'll be unhappy. So when people are given the opportunity to say, yes, if I can only have that, I will just be so fulfilled. And oh my gosh, if that happened to me, I would never want to live again. Experience tells us that it's often the opposite. When we get the things we thought would make us happy, we find that we're often bored and not as fulfilled as we thought we would be. And when those things happen to us that we thought would destroy us, we feel like, oh, I'm actually very happy and I, I, I'm glad that my life turned out this way and I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, so we're not as good as we think we are at predicting when we'll be happy and when we'll not be happy. So anyway, bringing it back to fear, I, I would say fear is that which destroys us from afar, but it is that which empowers us up close. When you, when you move towards your fear and, and you go ahead and face it, you discover that it's something other than this evil monster that's capable of destroying you. It's often the very um, the very means by which many of your dreams and desires can be fulfilled, by which growth takes place. But if you keep your distance, 
um, it'll rule you, it'll, it'll control you, and it'll keep you from becoming the person you want to be. That's what comes to my mind when I think of fear. So one of the other words I had on here was distance. Um, but I'm going to hold off on that because you, you talked that with fear. I'm going to throw some other ones at you. Uh, optimism. Yeah. Um, and I like distance by the way, and we can talk about that in a way that's not related to fear, but optimism, you know what, man, I, I define optimism, not as, you know, people often contrast optimism with realism. They say, I'm not an optimist. I'm a realist, you know? Um, but I think optimism is, is nothing more than the recognition that reality isn't something we need to run from. It isn't something we need to be afraid of. That reality is something we can handle. So optimism is basically um, the belief that being a realist isn't a negative thing. Being a realist isn't a bad thing. Um, that you don't need to be positive when you realize that so many of the things we're negative about are based on questionable assumptions. And if we subjected our negative beliefs to the same amount of scrutiny that we do with our positive beliefs, we'd find that we don't need a whole lot of positivity. Um, so optimism is just about recognizing, hey, uh, crappy things happen, bad things happen, life doesn't always go your way. No, it doesn't always feel as if the universe is always looking out for you. No, everything doesn't always work out in the way you thought it would work out. And some days just flat out suck. And you know what? That's not the end of the world. You can handle that. You can move through it. You can move past it. It's all good. Do you? Would you? That's what optimism is about for me. Would you say it's fair to to say that the way you described it, it's it's almost kind of like a, it's almost like the stoic approach to kind of look. Let's let's take what's the worst thing that could happen. Let's embrace it. Let's say sure that's going to happen. Uh, fine, we can deal with that. And anything above that is a benefit. Or would you say what you're describing as an outlook is is some slightly different from that stoic approach? I, I, I would say from what you've described, I, I would say that it's it, it's quite similar to that. Absolutely. The, I love how you there's like a backhanded insult in there or a or a subtle insult like, yes, by the Isaac Morehouse definition of stoicism. <laughs> sure. If we're going to call this rich philosophical tradition that. <laughs> OK. All right. So since I mentioned it and you said you were interested, I'm going to give you two to choose from here. Distance or magic? Hmm. Oh man, that's tough. You can't, you can't, you can't put me in a position where I have to choose. It was a, anything it was a trick question because you're a both and guy and I knew you were going to cheat and do both anyway. <laughs> Let's talk about the magic of distance. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, what I was going to say about distance is, you know, distance has a, a special, um, a very special connotation for me because my, my wife and I, uh, our our marriage is rooted in long in a long distance relationship. When we first started dating, we began long distance, so we never had a year together or a few months together during our dating phase. We literally began dating like days before I was getting ready to move from the same city we were living in to California. Uh, and so, it's interesting. We were long distance for a couple of years before we got engaged and then we got married. And you hear a lot of things about long distance relationships and, and I have no philosophy about whether people should do that or not. Some people say never do long distance or whatever. But for us, I, I discovered that distance is a really powerful force at letting you know what in the relationship is of 
of, of real value. I, I, you know, it, when you're together, you can do so many things that distract from the essential things. Like you can go to a movie together and you can watch that movie and enjoy that movie and have fun being in a movie theater together, watching that movie. But you still don't know if you have compatible philosophies. You still don't really know if you like the way this person handles conflict. You still don't really know what this person thinks about the deepest parts of you. And because our relationship was long distance, we had nothing but conversation. It's not like we could we had the luxury of being able to just hold each other for an hour and not talk or the luxury of, of doing fun things that took the attention off of each other. And so because we were long distance, we, all we had was conversation. We talk every day on the phone, you know, anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour. And we got to know each other really well. We became really good friends. And we had a really substantial relationship. And now, even though my wife and I, you know, we hang out and we do all sorts of fun things together, we're just super close because we know the art of conversation. I just got back in town uh, yesterday evening. And the first thing we wanted to do was go for a walk and talk. And we went for a walk and we talked and we did that for about an hour and a half. And it was the easiest thing in the world for us to have a conversation. And we talked about all kinds of things, superficial things, funny things, philosophical things. It was the most amazing thing. So I, now I want to now I want to talk about distance in a way that's not related to relationships. So Robert Kiyosaki has this book called The Cash Flow Quadrant. And in that book, he talks about the four different categories of money makers in society. He talks about the employee, the self-employee, the business owner, and the investor. He says the employee makes money by 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 working for money. The self-employee makes money by working for himself. The business owner makes money by having other people do work for him. And the investor makes money by having money do the work for him. And he talks about how to move from the top half of the quadrant, which is the employee and the self-employee, to the bottom half of the quadrant, which is the business owner and the investor. And he says a lot of people think they're business owners when they're really self-employees. How do you know the difference? Well, a self-employee doesn't have the luxury of distance. If he leaves his business for two weeks or three weeks, he'll come back and everything will be in shambles and, and, and he'll have to do a bunch of recovery work. Whereas the business owner can leave for several weeks and he'll come back and his business will still thrive because he's established a system that can survive apart from him. So when I think about distance, I think about maybe, what maybe that isn't so different from what you just said about relationships. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Because when I think about distance, I think about something that has such a strong foundation that it cannot be destroyed by time apart. I think about distance as the thing that reveals what something is really made of, whether it's in business or relationships. If you can't step away or be apart without everything crumbling down, that means you don't have a good system. You don't have a strong foundation. You don't have solid chemistry. So distance is, is the great, um, it's, it's the thing that reveals what, what we're made of. Maybe that's why you and I chose to live on opposite coasts. <laughs> I, I think so, man. I think distance is what keeps us together. <laughs> All right. You want to, you want to tackle magic? Are you tired? Can you keep going? Yeah, I can keep going. All right, man. Man. Magic funny. hit me. What do I think of when I think of magic? You know, it's interesting. I, I think about that. I, I think about magic in contrast with science. And, and, and that's not the only way to think about it. But magic usually uh, has the connotation of drawing from powers that are beyond the realm of the physical or beyond the realm of what science can or even will be able to explain. Whereas science is where, you know, we appeal to 
naturalistic explanations and so forth. And when we, you know, when we look at magic in movies, we, we see them doing things that are supposed to be scientifically impossible. But I also think about the statement that, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing it here, that every generation's advanced technologies or every generation's technologies was a previous generation's version of magic. And one of the things I have a suspicion of is I, I, I'm kind of suspicious that one day we're going to advance in our understanding of self and our understanding of the universe and our, and, and, and our application of technology, that the distinction between magic and science will, will no longer mean anything. Um, I, I, I think we're actually moving in that direction where it just won't matter uh, what we call it. And if you think about the use of magic, even if you adopt sort of like a supernatural understanding of magic, if you think about what it's like to use magic from the perspective of someone uh, or what it's like to observe magic from the perspective of someone who's using the magic, it's always done from a place of knowledge and understanding rather than a place of power. So if you're watching someone do magic, you think to yourself, oh, wow, they're so powerful. They're so supernatural or amazing. But if you're the person that's doing the magic, you're not thinking to yourself, oh, wow, I'm so amazing and mystical and powerful. You're just operating from a higher level of knowledge and understanding. You just get how things work on a higher plane. I think one day we're going to get to that place as a species where we're operating from such a higher plane of knowledge and such a higher plane of the application of technology that we will no longer we will no longer have a need to debate magic or science because we will be living a life that is in some sense from our current perspective so magical that that distinction will no longer make a difference. Am I, am I even making oh, sense absolutely, when I say that? Absolutely. I think there's something really cool about that because it can also foster a renewed sense of awe. When you think about children when they're very little, their parents are almost magical beings to them or, or adults, older people – they just seem capable of doing anything. And this is reflected in sometimes they'll ask you to do things that are totally impossible, but they just think that you can do anything because to them, magic and mastery are indistinguishable. And if you are, mm -hmm. are, you know, it's like somebody who's really good at the piano, who's masterful at it. They see themselves as, ah, I'm not that good. I have some limits, but everyone else, if you're totally ignorant of it, You'll be like, you know, play this song, play this song. You just assume they can do anything because to you, magic and mastery are the same thing. And you have that sense of awe that comes from ignorance, but not ignorance in necessarily a negative way. I think that's a, I think that's an interesting overlap. All right. We're moving on. You ready? Can you handle a couple yeah, more? Man. Yeah. All right. Data. Data. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, uh, when I think of data, the first word that comes to my mind is overrated. <laughs> we think alike. Be because, look, data is very important. So overrated doesn't mean unimportant. Sometimes when you say something is overrated, people get all defensive and they react as if you just said something doesn't matter at all, you know, that the world would be better off it, if it didn't exist. But if that's what you're hearing, that's not what I'm saying. Data is very important. But wh when I say overrated, I mean – I think people value data without understanding the philosophical presuppositions that must be in place in order for us to even understand what the data is telling us and in order for us to derive implications for, for what the data means and how we ought to respond to it. So if you really think about all the things that matter when we look at data, the things that really matter are questions like, um, what does it mean? Is it true? How do we know? 
What should we do next? What's the right response to this data? What are the arguments that can be made for or against that? And those are really questions of ethics, questions of epistemology, questions that require the use of, of all sorts of conceptual tools and the invocation of, of philosophical principles that, that, that often get ignored. And, and, and people often approach data as if there is such a thing as data that speaks for itself. But, but data, can't, data can't do anything for us unless we first interpret that data. And in fact, data can't even be gathered unless we make a significant number of philosophical presuppositions about what constitutes knowledge, what, it, what constitutes evidence, what constitutes research, um, you know, and all, all those sorts of things. So you can't even gather data without philosophy. You certainly can't interpret or apply data without philosophy. And as long as we keep those things in mind, it's great. But as long as we, we treat data as if it's just sort of this standalone entity that, that resolves debates without the need for us to philosophically scrutinize our presuppositions and interpretations, then I, I think we're overrating the value of data. Uh, you know, it, it reminds me, and I'm sure you've experienced this in, in religious context, it reminds me of those Christians who say things like, oh, I just believe what the Bible says. You know, so you ask them something like, so what's your concept of, you know, communion? Do, what, what do you think of the Catholic doctrine of, you know, uh, or what do you think of like the doctrine of like transubstantiation of the Eucharist or something like that? And there are people that say things like, oh, I just believe what the Bible says, <laughs> just, you know, what the Bible says. So, like, so okay, do all like, of the other 250 denominations that disagree. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Seriously, like, well, everybody, you know, who's a Christian believes just what the Bible says. But the problem is, when we come to the Bible, before we even start reading it, we have a number of philosophical presuppositions about how it should be interpreted, what the rules of interpretation are, what it means to properly understand stuff. And so, you know, people do this with data all the time. I just believe what the data says, as if they're not a specific individual with a specific set of assumptions and experiences that affect how they interpret that data, you know? All right. So I got to ask you a quick break. Are you enjoying this? Is this fun? Yeah, this is kind of cool. It's different. I've never done this before. So, because I'm thinking we might want to try this again because the reason, because I have like 15 words here and I want you to tell me how many more you want to do right now. But um, I might save some for another episode. We might try this again. Yeah, I, I think there's hope that I'll get better at this. I feel like I'm, I'm just starting to get warmed up a little oh, bit. Well then, um, well, then let's roll. How many more do you want to do? You tell me. Let's try a few more. Let's see how it goes. What is a few? That's so non-concrete. <laughs> That's like when you say to somebody, hey, I'm, I'm available between two and four tomorrow. Pick a time for a meeting. And they say, great, I'm around. <laughs> the worst. Okay. I'm going to just interpret a few as whatever I feel like. Okay. You ready? <laughs> yep. I'm ready. <laughs> There's so many good ones. I'm having a hard time deciding here. Uh, do you like it when I give you two and you pick or do you like me to just give you one? It doesn't matter. Man, come on. That's useless. All right. I, I like both. <laughs> All right. This one is relative to how I'm feeling right now. Suffering. Ooh, suffering. Oh, okay. I, I'll, now, I'm not just – I'm not giving my definition of these words. I'm just sharing the first set of thoughts that come to mind, right? It's up to you, man. Words with T.K. Right. Coleman. It's all about what, what you want to do. Suffering is very, very interesting to me. Very let, interesting. Let me, let me put it this way real quick. I'm more interested in what is your relationship to these words, at least that comes to mind immediately. Yeah. Okay. So 
when I think of suffering, I think of something that, um, and I feel like I'm in rare company when it comes to this following belief, although it's easy to say you, you agree with me, but it's much harder to live as if you do. I think suffering is something that applies to everyone. So in other words, I, I don't acknowledge any distinction whatsoever between people who know what it is to suffer and people who don't know what it is to suffer. So I believe that suffering is universal. There is no such thing as a person who lacks knowledge of suffering. Secondly, I believe that suffering is ultimately unqualifiable. I believe that pain is irreducibly particular so that it's never possible to truly say who suffers more than another. In any case where we think we have an example of one person suffering more than another, it's because we're making a number of assumptions about the nature of suffering, the people who are suffering, that when subjected to philosophical scrutiny begin to fall apart. And, and, and I'm sure as someone's listening to this right now, they're thinking, oh, you're absolutely crazy. I can think of several people right now that are suffering more than Paris Hilton. And again, I would say, I, I agree with what you're saying. I used to think that too. And the only reason it appears so obvious is because there are a number of philosophical presuppositions in place. But if we start to scrutinize them, we'll see just how fragile they are. Uh, so I, I think this is an, an important thing because I think recognition of the universality of suffering and the particularity of pain are essential to number one, learning. Because if you believe that you're someone who suffers more than everyone else, if you believe that your sufferings are greater than mine or most people's or what have you, it makes it almost impossible for you to learn or grow. Because an essential part of learning and growth means being able to extract meaningful lessons from people that are different from you. Uh, imagine how limited you would be if you said, I will only learn and be inspired. I will only learn from and be inspired by people who I respect as having suffered more than me or as much as me. You're seriously limiting your options. Um, in, in addition to that, you lose your ability to um, relate to other people in meaningful ways. You know, as long as you see yourself as suffering to a greater degree than others, you, you, you actually lose your ability to be um, helpful towards others. In, in the way in the way that you could be. So those are some initial thoughts about suffering. I mean, if you want to challenge me on, on some of these things or ask me some specific questions, I can get into it. But I, I don't know how much info you want. No, I mean, but, un <laughs> unfortunately, for the sake of drama, I, I, I agree way too much with your perspective on here. So there's nothing to, to fight with you about necessarily. I'm reminded of. I, I think it's really valuable to see the multiple perspectives that can exist simultaneously that, that even seem to be opposites at some times, but that each of which they're like lenses, right? It's like, if you're, if you're hunting for something that's lost, there's a time where night vision is the best lens to use. There's a time where thermal vision is the best lens to use. There's a time where, you know, uh, whatever, a, a pair of, you know, binoculars is the best lens to use. And I think when you look at if you were to say the human race, uh, uh, an article that I, I wrote for uh, Fee one time was was about the doomsayers are right, the doomsayers are right, and so are the optimists. And I and I use this this thought experiment of if you were living in you know 1900, and a visitor from 2015 came, and you asked them two visitors, and you asked them to tell me about the next 115 years, there are two stories 
totally different, but both totally accurate that you could tell. You could say humanity has suffered more than ever in the history of the world in this next 115 years that you're about to go through. There are two world wars that the proportion of which no one could ever imagine. There's mass genocide. There's mass starvation in the millions. There are totalitarian regimes, the likes of which no one's ever seen. Atomic bombs are made and are used and are leveling entire cities. There are economic depressions. Uh, I mean, that's a story that's true. But it's also true that in the next hundred years, more human progress and achievement and wealth and, you know, opportunity is created than was ever imaginable before. The smartphone alone is like in everybody's pocket and no one. And I think both of those are true factually, like facts, like we talked about with data before. The facts can tell either story. And at some times it's valuable to adopt the lens of the, of the doomsayer, the, the, the negative person. And sometimes it's valuable to adopt the lens of the optimist. And I think the same with suffering. It's, it's sometimes valuable to see people and to say, or yourself and to say, man, I've had it really good. I'm in no position to complain. Look at this person who's had it way worse. That can be a valuable lens at other times. It can be valuable to say, man, like cut myself some slack here. I have actually gone through some stuff. I have, I have suffered in some ways that not many people can relate to, you know, and I think both of those are valuable perspectives depending upon the context. All right. I, I, well, let, let me, let me, let me piggyback on that and say, I absolutely agree. One of my, one of my views regarding self-help philosophy, and this is why I think I can get more out of it than a lot of people do is I don't approach self-help religiously. I don't approach it as if the goal is to become an absolutist in relation to one really good piece of advice and to make make that into some sort of belief requirement that I now have to meet. I look at it as a conceptual tool that, like all other tools, is applicable in some situations and not applicable in other situations. And every belief and its opposite can be potentially useful depending on the context. So for instance, I, I think you wrote a little bit about this on your blog today, you can have the belief, hey, Isaac, you are valuable. You matter. You are important. And there are times in your life where you need to embody that attitude. If no one else is affirming you, um, you have to know for yourself that you have value, that you are significant. And I think there's a certain benefit to even regarding yourself as having cogniz cog uh, cosmic significance. Like, you know what? I am capable of starting a revolution. I am capable of changing the world. I am capable of doing things that will mat that will still matter a thousand years from now. Why not me? You know. But then at the same time, there's the opposite belief, which is you ain't shiznit. You know <laughs> what I mean? And, and, and I think that's just as valuable as the other belief because you know it's useful to know that nobody is waking up in the morning knocking themselves over to try to solve your problems or make your life better. Yeah, maybe your mom is, maybe your spouse is or what have you, and, and even that's questionable. But for the most part, nobody cares about your happiness like you care about your happiness. No one cares about your goals like you care about your goals. And if you were to drop dead right now without achieving anything that you wanted to achieve or without having lived your life the way you wanted to live it, there are a few people that would be sad about it, but. No one's going to act as if some great tragedy happened. The world will eventually move on and it will be all right. But I think it's healthy to know that for the most part, for the overwhelming majority of the world, you're not important. 
And if you were to drop dead right now, most people on the planet would not hear about it, and they would not care if they did hear about it. Th that's important to know. And, and both of those things are true, and you don't have to be an absolutist about it. So I totally agree with you. But, but one more thing about suffering. I think when, when we talk about suffering, I think we tend to look at it only in terms of external circumstances and conditions. So this person is suffering because they lack money or because they're physically ill or because they're in a bad marriage or because they're victims of abuse or what have you. But one of the most overlooked components of, quote unquote, quantifying a person's suffering is you also have to look at the person who is going through the experience. Uh, what you know, what are their fears? What are their dreams? What are their capacities? What amount of insight do they have? You know, what what is their ability to cope? with that amount of suffering to deal with that. And that's not equal for everyone. So you can have two people going through the same set of conditions and one person can find that, you know, really fun, really easy. And another person can find that to be really tragic. And, and we tend to evaluate suffering based on circumstance. So for instance, if you have a 35 year old who went through a divorce and they're also in a financially stressful situation, but then you have a 12-year-old who's crying about some kid at school who doesn't like back. It would be easy to say, oh, clearly the problem of the 35-year-old is greater and they're really going through suffering. This 12-year-old kid is just, you know, they're just too immature to realize they don't have a real problem. But that that's only true if you evaluate that 12-year-old problem with all of the luxuries of having a 35-year-old soul. But you have to evaluate that problem from the perspective of what it's like to experience it as a 12-year-old. Hey. And that 12-year-old doesn't have access to your wisdom, to your experience, to your knowledge, your maturity, and so forth. So for them, it might be just as big as your situation is for you. And so I'm not saying no one has it more difficult than the other, that no one suffers more than the other. But it's not as easy to figure out who's who, if it is true, as we look, often look, uh, we can, assume. We can illustrate and prove this very simply. I mean – you know, uh, you would think someone who destroys their ACL, very painful, they can't do anything for like a year. Objectively, you would say that person's probably suffering more than someone who just heard about it. However, I have witnessed uh, Derek Rose tearing his ACL. Was it was it his ACL? When was that? Well, yeah, I don't yeah, like yeah. where you're going. Yeah, yeah. This, Derek yeah. Rose tearing his ACL, the Chicago Bulls uh, guard, and missing an entire year of basketball, his, his profession, whatever. He did not seem to be suffering nearly as much as TK Coleman, who was his ACL was <laughs> fine, who was just observing this situation from a distance. I think you didn't know how to handle his torn ACL as well as he did. It caused you more suffering than him. Um, this is true. This is a great <laughs> example. Right, I'm, I'm going to throw two more at you. We're going to wrap it up with these two. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. All right. Mentor and greatness. Mm. Mentor and greatness. So, you know, th that word mentor is, is kind of funny <laughs> because for most of my life, I loved the idea of mentors and I have relied quite heavily upon mentors to to learn and grow. But <laughs> as I grow older, I, I start to look at the concept of mentor a little bit differently or maybe I just feel different about it because I, I almost feel like we live in a mentor happy society where <laughs> – People treat having a mentor as the end all be all, and they, they almost trade in their own judgment, even their own dignity, just to get the validation of someone else's opinion. I mean, 
I'm sure you've seen this all the time. Oh like, man, for some, some reason the, the word mentor just rubs me the wrong way. I just like rebel against it. You know, like something about it, it just feels paternalistic. Yeah, there, there is something about it that feels that way. So I, I admit I, I am kind of prejudiced when it comes to that concept. But here's what I would say to put a positive take on it. Here, you don't have to put concept. a positive take on it. <laughs> well, well, here's a concept of mentorship that I do endorse. Um, I believe life is a journey for all of us. We're all learning. I, I think if you're going to call yourself a teacher or an educator, what that really means is that you are the chief example of what it means to be a learner, a seeker of knowledge. I don't believe you should wear that title if you are not willing to dedicate yourself to the pursuit of learning and personal growth uh, more than your students. So, for, for instance, for me, um, my, my, my guiding principle is never ask the people that I teach, never ask of them something that I wouldn't do for my that I wouldn't do myself and to always challenge myself to ask more of them, right? So now if you're looking at mentorship as finding someone who is a dedicated learner, finding someone who is dedicated to growth, who is willing to work with me, collaborate with me to help me clarify and achieve my own goals, then I would say, yeah, we all need mentors, but that doesn't mean someone who is an authority in your life or someone who is above you. Uh, it simply means someone who is a, fellow creator, fellow student in the path of life, and maybe they have some experiences you don't have, some perspectives that you don't have, and they can help you just as you can help them. So as long as you take the notion of submitting yourself to an authority figure out of it, I think mentorship is is a very valuable thing. So, so you know, here's my, you, so my uh, I think one of the things that I dislike about it is that it's so hard for all humans to be in a sort of mentor role without, without developing this sense of I need or want this person to become a certain thing that would make me feel good, even if that certain thing is not quite exactly what's ideal for them. It's really hard because no one has enough knowledge of anyone else, right? Only that individual themselves can really know what their path is. And it's really hard for mentors. This is why I like mentors who are dead. <laughs> all, all the people I would consider my best mentors, they're dead and I can, I can read their ideas and follow their, and I feel like it provides so much guidance and example to draw from without any of that component of like pressure or subtle unintentional manipulation of this person really thinks I should do this or wants me to do this. Like they don't know me personally. They're gone. I'm just reading their material, their ideas and being mentored by what I, what I learned from them, uh, as they explored things. And it didn't have any element of them needing me to become something, to be their protege or something to that effect. Um, anyway, that's always, that's always sort of been my, I, I just sort of found at one point, like, why is it that all of the people that i look up to and see as like mentor type figures, they're all dead. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's part of it. Cause I really, I really chafe against starting to get that feeling that someone really wants me to do a certain thing that would make them feel like they helped me or were that I'm successful by their definition or something. Like I just, I want that freedom to explore and change and grow without someone being like, Oh no, you've, you've lost your way. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It makes a ton of sense. If you're going to, to look for a mentor, then find, you know, find I, I would one, say find one that doesn't care about you almost. Right. 
Right, right. They're not attached to their own idea of what would make you successful. They'll, they'll liberally share what they know with you, but they'll respect your own judgment, your own decision-making process, because their ultimate goal is to help you cultivate a trust in your own judgment, to help you listen to your own voice and develop a sense of your own values. All right, so but hey, man, go ahead. what you just said about how you like dead mentors. So if you die first uh, and I produced a movie about your life, I'm going to have Vin Diesel play you and there's going to be a, there's going to be a scene where your mentor walks into a room and it'll be like Morgan Freeman so that'll, he'll be playing me and, and and your mentor will walk in and he'll tell you to do something and Vin Diesel will say you know like in his deep voice you know what I like my mentors dead and they'll pull out a gun and like shoot the guy right there Dude, that'll be your story that'll be the beginning of the what movie what I love about your about your imagination is first of all you assume that you and I are going to die before Morgan Freeman and Vin Diesel. And, <laughs> and that, and that somehow these, these men who will be likely very, very old at this point will, will be the best to represent us. Second, Vin Diesel would need to lose like 350 pounds of muscle to represent me. Um, this is, this is truly, I, I like this. I like this idea of a movie. Hey, 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 but Morgan Freeman can play me, right? Oh, yeah. I, I got that person. Well, you're, you're ageless and timeless and no one knows how old you actually are. Hey, so, so, I know I want it. Greatness was what I wanted to end on. And I still do. But since we just sort of, I don't want to say ripped on, but we kind of, we kind of talked about mentorship in a way that's, uh, you know, not different than the typical glorification of it. How would you distinguish that from coaching? Because I know that coaching, um, and that can have some cheesy implications too, but that's something that that's a big part of the Praxis program. That's a big part of, um, you know, a lot of what you do and what, which I think you're very good at. How would you distinguish those two? And, and it, does it have anything to do with, someone deliberately paying for a service versus or for with a specific outcome, like a coach of a sports team uh, versus someone just trying, you know, just doing it for the, for the feels uh, because it feels good or whatever. What would you distinguish those two things in some way, those two acts? Yeah. Now, you know, first I would say, cause I'm so nitpicky about semantics. I would say both of these concepts if properly understood, or at least as I understand them, are the same. However, as they're often used and understood, that's where you get a lot of the variety. And the word coaching is one that some people look upon disparagingly as well. But how I see coaching, what makes that distinct from at least the kind of mentorship we talked about? Well, I see a few different things. First, the first image that comes to mind is that of a fitness trainer. When someone hires a fitness trainer, the fitness trainer doesn't tell them what the goals are, right? That person comes into the gym, whatever, and they say, hey, I want to lose 20 pounds in this amount of time. Or, hey, I, you know, I, I want to have awesome pecs. Or, um, you know, I, I, I want to be able to I want to get to the, I want to get to the mass to where Vin Diesel can play me in a movie and it's believable. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you tell your fitness trainer the goal, right? And the fitness trainer, the first thing they do is they challenge you to think critically and precisely about that goal. All right. What do you mean when you say you want this? And they may challenge you to maybe push yourself a little more, to push yourself a little less. They may make suggestions. But then once they work out with you what those goals are and they, and they, and they help you think about them precisely, they draw from their knowledge and experience, a knowledge and experience that involves not only study, but personal training and working with other people who have gone through similar processes. They help you develop a strategy map. They help you develop a plan that's going to take you from point A to point Z. But then, in addition to that, they go beyond that. They 
they are then there to hold you accountable to what you say you want and to always push you to uh, to go after it. So the fitness trainer, is, it, it doesn't set the goals for you. They're not an authority figure in your life who tells you this is what you're going to do. This is what success is. You get to define that at the same time when you are doing your push-ups and you reach 50 push-ups and you say, that's all I have in me. I'm going to die now. It's the job of the fitness trainer to sometimes say things like, you've got five more in you or give me just one more or give me one more block of running. I'll run next to you. I'll get on the bicycle and ride behind you or whatever. So they're also there to push you a little bit further. Now let me use a different analogy for coaching. I'm a big basketball fan. And I think about some of the greatest coaches in the NBA, people like Pat Rowley or, or Phil Jackson. I know that the further we go back in time, we can get, you know, even other, you know, uh, other names in there as well. But if you take Pat Rowley and Phil Jackson, both of these guys were, they, they played basketball but neither one of them were anywhere close to the level of greatness as the people they coached. Like Pat Rowley was never the basketball player that Magic Johnson was, never the basketball player that Alonzo Mourning was. Phil Jackson, he was never the basketball player that Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and, and, and Shaquille O'Neal were. He, he was never that. And yet at the same time, these guys had an ability to bring something out of those guys that no one else could do. And, and, and even these players talked about it. They, they had the ability to help great people get inside of their own heads and deal with the BS that was, that was getting them in the way, that was getting in the way of the full and free expression of their greatness. And I think that's something that every great coach has the ability to do. They help people get inside of their own heads so they can get out of their own way and realize their full potential. So a coach isn't necessarily better than the person they're coaching at what it is they do. They're just really good at helping that person be the best version of themselves. And it's kind of funny because great players don't always make great coaches. So, uh, you know, we saw Magic Johnson, who was a much better player than Pat Riley. When, when he took a coaching position, he didn't have that same ability that Pat Riley did to help other people get inside of their own heads so they can conquer their own BS and get out of their own way. So I, I think that's an important distinction to recognize as well. But that's sort of a, a preliminary understanding of how I see and understand, you know, the concept of coaching. All right, TK, you got one more in you. I know it. I know you want to quit, but I'm not going to let you. I'm going to push you here because I'm, I'm, I'm your coach. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's like the absolute worst is when someone tries to coach you when you haven't asked them to and invited, <laughs> invited them to. Um, last one, a word that I am, I don't know. It's like, it's always in my head. I'm obsessed with it. I want to understand it. I want to know what it means. I want to achieve it. I want to identify it when I see it elsewhere. Uh, it's really hard to define. Greatness. Mm. Greatness. Oh, man. I, I tend to understand greatness in terms of self-actualization. And I know that might be a mystical sounding term for some, but I understand self-actualization as a lifelong process, a never-ending process of unearthing more of your potential, more of the treasures that lie inside of you. Dr. Miles Monroe talked about a concept called dying empty. And he always talked about how the richest place in the world is the grave because people die with their treasures still buried inside them. Um, unwritten songs, unpursued dreams, unwritten screen plays, 
you know, things like that. And and the goal of life is to die empty, which may not be literally possible, but but it's to try to to give expression to as much of our potential as we possibly can before our, our time on this earth is done. So I believe that when we engage in uh, creative projects, when we learn new things, when we master new skills, yes, we can make more money with those things. Yes, we can um, create value for others by doing that. But I believe that the greatest value of doing those things is you discover aspects of yourself that you could not have come to know in any other way. So if you dedicate this year to learning how to play the piano, for instance, I would contend that there are aspects of Isaac's psyche that you just can't know any other way than by learning to play the piano. And if you choose something else besides that and you say, no, I'm going to dedicate this year to speaking Russian, well, then you're not going to know what the version of Isaac looks and feels like had he studied piano instead. You're going you're gonna to bring forth a different aspect of your psyche. So I believe that every goal that we set, the goal of every goal is to unlock some part of ourselves that only that particular goal can bring forth. So for me, greatness is about being relentlessly committed to unlocking all of these different aspects of yourself as much as you can in the race against time that is life. And to do that, not in a way that's stressful, like, oh my gosh, this is something I can fail at, but to look at success as just always being in the middle of that process and always knowing how to make it fun so that on the day you die, your process of unearthing some aspect of yourself gets interrupted, you know? You missed an opportunity there. I I really set you up. I mean, I just lobbed a softball to you. I said, greatness. I thought you would just say, Isaac Morehouse. I mean, come on. It was there. I'm sorry. I had it on mute. I was laughing. Wait, I had it on come mute. on now. That was the most painful <laughs> silence for me. You did that just to try to like bring <laughs> Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I promise you, I, I promise you, I laugh, but I had it on mute. <laughs> I think about, uh, what is this scene from from what about from what about Bob? He says, when I think of greatness, there are really only three names: uh, Dr. Albert Schweitzer, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, probably, and Dr. Leo Marvin. I was I, that's the kind of answer I was looking for from you. <laughs> hey, this was a that's lot of fun. Awesome, I thought maybe it would be 20 minutes. Of course, you and I, it was you know 45. Um, I like this though. I, I think we might have to do this again. We'll see. I might, if anybody has other words you would like to throw at TK, um, send them to me. You can go to isaacmorehouse.com. You could submit them right through the ask Isaac form. Um, even though it says ask Isaac, just put, you know, uh, here's some words for TK Coleman and, um, we'll see what we get. And, uh, depending upon what we get, we might do another episode. What do you think? I'm game. I'm game. Hey man, I appreciate the time. Look forward to talking again. Absolutely.